0: Hello, everyone, and welcome into this edition of the Sports Detective Podcast. I am your host, James Williams, and today I talk to Richie Bradshaw, who is the host of the Locked On Sun Devils podcast. He is a recurring guest, and I talk to Richie about this upcoming Arizona State and Pac-12 football season. We discuss the impact of Arizona State raiding the transfer portal and getting 43 new players on this year's roster, not just from the transfer portal, that also includes freshmen, who will win the Three man quarterback battle for the starting position. What is Kenny Dillingham's offensive philosophy and how well is he going to do at Arizona State this year and the next coming years? We talk about realignment and Colorado going to the Big 12. What does that mean for Arizona State? What does that mean for the other teams in the Pac 12? We talk about the top end of the Pac 12. Who can potentially win the Pac 12? Are we sleeping on Utah? Could USC? make a run with Caleb Williams, Washington, Michael Penix, could it be their year? Oregon, Bo Nix, Heisman height. We talk about all that. We talk a little Ravens at the end because Richie is a huge Ravens fan. Now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Richie Bradshaw. All right, joining us is Richie Bradshaw from the Locked On Sun Devils podcast. We're going to be here talking Arizona State football, a little Pac-12 football, Richie Arizona State obviously fires Herm Edwards last year. They go on a coaching search. They get Kenny Dillingham, and what Kenny Dillingham has done this off season is basically, he's kind of done the Dion thing, but he's not as like cool as Dion, at least to the media. He's not like like when Colorado left the Big Twelve or went to the Big Twelve. All the headlines had Dion's like you know silhouette, like he was responsible for it, like he made the move. But Kenny Dillingham is very similar in uh, primetime in that he has been getting a bunch of new players, 43 new players by my count, going to be on this Arizona State team that was not on the team last year, including 25 Division One transfer players. What what should we expect out of a team that's just completely different from last year, has only been on campus a few months now? Like, What, what are your expectations heading into this season?
1: It is... One of the biggest transitions that Arizona State Sun Devils football has ever had, like you said, 43 guys and, you know, just so many of them coming through the transfer portal. The good news with the transfer portal guys is a lot of them are like some seasoned veterans, guys who are, you know, juniors or seniors or graduates even that are coming to the program to help provide a little bit of stability. Because right now what the Sun Devils need for the team entirely, not just like one side of the football, they need – anything that can provide that foundation and the groundwork for what Kenny Dillingham is trying to establish here. There's so much that's going on with a new coaching staff. And I I mean, like, pretty much everybody is brand new. They did bring Sean Aguano back, who was the interim head coach for Arizona State last year and won two of their three games, including over Washington. They've got a philosophy. They've got a mentality. They've got a culture. That they're trying to establish and all of those transfers are really going to be key components to get you to that point as far as expectations go I don't know that you can have expectations in terms of wins and losses I think what you're going to be looking for is a team that is consistently in games a team that's fun to watch and a team that is really beginning to form its identity of the new Kenny Dillingham era because with a guy that's as young as he is, with a guy that's got the ties to the program that he has, because he was a graduate in 2012. He worked there as a graduate assistant under Mike Norvell. Like he's he's got these roots to the program. So when you've got all of that going on, there's obviously a lot of excitement that's getting getting drummed up for a new era of Sun Devils football with a guy who's young, innovative, determined, and everything else that you're looking for plus he's a local guy so for expectations you really just want to see that you're making that progress in year one whether it's one win or bowl eligible you just want to know that this is week in and week out a Kenny Dillingham squad that's determined to take those strides forward and move on from last year like I said I don't think that it's it's going to be one of those years where you can truly judge it In the wins and losses column, you just need to be able to watch the games, understand and go beyond box scores to figure out whether or not this is going to be a successful experiment or if it's going to set you back. But that's where you start for year one is seeing the culture and everything else start to change.
0: You described in one of your podcasts recently, the quarterback situation is a three man race. There's not too many three man races for quarterbacks uh, in college football. We have Jaden Rashada, who's the highly coveted freshman coming in after the NI, weird NIL deal, like fell out with Florida. You have Drew Pine, who is a transfer from Notre Dame, who actually played at Notre Dame and was pretty productive last year. And then you have Trenton Borgo, is that how you say his name? Who Borgay. Borget. He, uh, he's yes. been in the program a few years, kind of the hometown guy. Who do you want to be quarterback one? Not even who you think it should be. Who do you want?
1: Uh, to me, that's just such a tough, loaded question because I have like an emotional attachment to Trenton Bourget. He came in last year for the team with uh, with Emory Jones going down to injury, and they just never looked back. And he's such a great story. This is a this is a walk on kid who stayed the course at the program, and even when he wasn't getting opportunities to be a starter behind Jaden Daniels, he still stayed with the program, and he proved to be one of the locker room leaders and like very, very much to his, uh, his style. Like he's not the raw, raw guy. He's not yelling and screaming, but he is the uplifting presence that you look for in the offense. So when I look at Trenton Borgay, he's just got the epitome of what I want to see out of my quarterback. Somebody who cares, somebody who who's compassionate and somebody who's got the drive to want to win football games. But on the flip side of the coin, you also want to be able to see what the future holds with Jaden Rashada and Jaden Rashada as a highly regarded four-star quarterback who's nice and tall at 6'3 or 6'4, depending on where you're looking with big arm mobility. He's obviously the prize possession of this recruiting class and year one of Kenny Dillingham. You want to see him on the field as soon as possible, too. So those are the two guys that I would say like I want to see. And don't get me wrong, I actually really like Drew Pine, and I would be very, very content if he was the week one starter. I think that he's a good quarterback who doesn't take too many chances. He's very reliable with the football. He can move out and improvise as he needs to. So I do see there being some quality um, quality traits there with him. I know that a lot of people were saying that Drew Pine was going to be Arizona State's Bo Nix because of what Bo Nix did at Oregon and like that's mm -mm, not at all like Bo Nix I think people underrate how great of an athlete he is both as a runner and as a thrower of the football plus he had previous experience with Kenny Dillingham so as far as Drew Pine goes I do think that he's a quality quarterback I don't know that you can go wrong with any of these three guys I think my heart wants Trenton Borgay because it I just want that storybook ending for him for him to have a final send-off season that gets started of the Kenny Dillingham era. I think that's where my heart is. But I do also really want to see Jaden Rashada on the field sooner rather than later. So I really go back and forth with that.
0: Okay, now I'll answer, uh, ask a similar question differently. Who Who's it going to be?
1: Day one. I think I think it's going to end up being Borgay. And the reason why is again, this is somebody who's familiar with the program. He's been here going into his fifth season. He's worked with some of the guys around the team. Yeah, they, they brought in a lot of guys, but you also are returning Elijah Badger at wide receiver and Jalen Conyers at tight end, two guys that are expected to be some of the best at their position in the conference. And when you've already got that established chemistry, that's going to go a long ways. But Borgé is also a good fit for this offense. Dillingham wants to get the ball out in two to two and a half seconds. And Borgé is a great underneath passer. And he's somebody that can distribute the ball very well. So it's not even just going to be about Conyers and Badger. He's going to get so many other guys involved. He's got the mobility too. Look, look, he's not Johnny Manziel as a runner. But he is somebody that can improvise and create those off script plays. So when you have all of that. Going in favor for you, this is definitely a situation where I believe that you're gonna get quality quarterback play and somebody who can help integrate the Kenny Dillingham slash Bo Baldwin, the offensive coordinators, offense in year one. So I think that Borgay is probably the week one starter. I think there's a handful of things that go into that as well. But that would be my prediction is that Borgay is the week one starter.
0: Dillingham brings in this offensive philosophy. He was the OC at Oregon last year. You mentioned he did wonders with Bo Nix, revitalized his career, brought him back from the dead. If you say, what is his offensive philosophy really going to be at Arizona state? Is he the type of person that's like, Hey, we'll get the best players and we'll build an offense around them. Or is he coming in with like a certain, like, you know, zone run scheme, air raid type of scheme. It just kind of seems like, uh, you know, at Oregon, they kind of did a lot of different things. Well, what What's really his offensive philosophy?
1: Yeah, there's going to be all sorts of different, different kind of niches that this offense is going to have. Arizona State in recent years has been a team that's really good at running the football. They've had a thousand yard rusher, uh, I think, all but like two times in the last almost 10 years or something like that and they've gotten good production from their transfer running backs as well so Cameron Scadabo, who's transferring from Sacramento State is likely going to be the starter there he could potentially be a bell cow for the team like ex Valade and Rashad White were previously to him you've got the weapons out wide as well i mentioned i mentioned Elijah Badger i mentioned Jalen Conyers at the tight end position but there's other guys that are returning Andre Johnson and Giovanni Sanders and Messiah Swenson at tight end There's guys that are coming into the program like uh, Xavier Guillory or uh, Jordan Tyson. There's a lot of weapons available here for whoever ends up being the quarterback and the guy under center, even if it changes. And I think that the main philosophy, like I said, is really just going to be a fast-paced offense. They want to get that ball out in two to two and a half, three seconds. They want to be able to move the ball quickly, establish a high-tempo kind of ferocity on the offensive side of the football, move down the field quick, and be able to attack defenses that are getting a little bit tired. It's not quite what Chip Kelly was doing in his prime because they're not going to be snapping the ball with over 30 seconds on the play clock, but this is going to be a team that's going to want to move the ball down the field as quickly and efficiently as they can, whether it's through the air or through the ground. That's one of the things that I like about Dillingham is I think that he's going to be able to bring a little bit of everything. Like you said, he he had a lot of different things that he did very well last year. Bucky Irving was a great running back at Oregon. They had Troy Franklin out wide. Bo Nix was a Heisman finalist. Like They did everything right on the offensive side of the football. That's what you're going to be looking for at of Dillingham this year is somebody who can provide that same kind of production for you and the same kind of offensive philosophy.
0: We mentioned all the transfers earlier. You talked about a little bit on one of your podcasts too, about snubs in the uh, PAC 12, all preseason rankings. Yeah. Is there, can, can you just name like, who were some of those snubs that you thought in your opinion got left off that list?
1: There was really only two big time snubs and it's the guys that I've been talking about, Badger and Conyers. Conyers was at least an honorable mention. Badger, was just flat out left off the list, which is insane to me. Badger was nearly a thousand yard receiver a year ago with two different quarterbacks, with a team that won three games, had a offensive minded shift in the middle of the season. But he, his body control is phenomenal. He's a great catcher of the football, very natural hands. Somebody who's able to create separation on his routes. I think this is going to be a thousand yard receiver this year, and I know that Badger has. High expectations for himself as well. He's looking for that barrier. He's looking for for taking that next step as a team's number one receiver. And then with Conyers, I truly believe in my heart of hearts that Conyers is going to end up being one of the best tight ends in the nation. What he ended up doing in the second half of the year, starting with the Colorado game, was just turn into this giant behemoth, but with the balance of a ballerina as weird as that sounds like he he is every bit of 6'4 260 pounds he looks like it he plays like it but yet this is a dude that can run around the football field like a gazelle and he's also really good at catching the football once the ball's in his hands you're not going to find many guys that are going to be able to let alone willing to tackle him in the open field he did so much damage during the spring practices this year, and he's going to be able to bring that exact same kind of mentality and that same kind of attitude and play style for the team this year. So when I look at those all pac 12 teams, and you don't have any Sun Devils listed on them, that just, it. don't get me wrong, I understand, especially at wide receiver, I get it because there's a ton of them. But not mentioning Badger to me is slanderous. And having Brant Keithy and Benjamin Urosek ahead of Jalen Conyers, to me, is a sin. But I can understand why they were there, especially Keithy, who's going into his you know 29th season at Utah at this point. But they're going to end up being guys that are going to make people regret sleeping on them. And I think that, it is, especially in the case of Conyers, who I'm predicting is going to be one of the best tight ends in the nation, they're going to end up being guys that we talk about at the season's end as some of the best in the Conference of Champions.
0: Conference of Champions name drop. We talked about this uh, a little bit like at the end of last season when we did the Pac-12 report cards. And we were talking about basically Pac-12 doesn't like to play defense. It's not fun to them. They like to play offense. And we also haven't talked about defense tonight. We're about 15 minutes in. What part of the defense this year for Arizona State are you most excited about to see day one?
1: I'm looking forward to what the pass rush is going to bring. You've got a new defensive coordinator in Brian Ward who's coming down from Washington State and has had a lot of success with the defense for the Cougars. And they've been in the top half of the Pac-12's defensive rankings since he took over there. He's coming to Arizona State. There's going to be a whole lot of movement and transition. You could potentially have less than like three returning starters from last year. Short of row torrents at corner, nobody spot is going to be guaranteed for any of these defenders. But looking at the pass rushing spots on the defensive line and, and on the edge, there's a lot of intrigue here. There's a lot of really interesting depth. It starts with Michael Matus, who's coming back from an ACL injury. He looks like he's 100%. He's participating in practice with no restrictions on him whatsoever. He's also a redshirt senior or a graduate. I can't remember exactly which one he is, but he's been with the program a long time. And he's somebody that a lot of the players there respect and want to learn from. He's going to be one of the guys that helps carve the future for these guys, even if he's only there for a year. But the youth is what's interesting to me. B.J. Green's going into his third season, the former walk-on player who has either led the team or tied for the team league team lead in his first two years with the team. He looks like an absolute beast. He plays with his hair on fire, and he is getting some, some reps out as an edge rusher after playing on the interior for his first two years. I think that he's going to be one of those guys that they're going to flex around and put it, put him into different situations and sub-packages and get the most out of him. Clayton Smith is one of the most intriguing high upside players on this roster. He's a former four-star or even a five-star, depending on which outlet you're looking at, out of Texas, who played at Oklahoma, transfers to Arizona State, and I mean, he looks like Adonis. The dude is... He is sculpted to look like an Olympic athlete. And he's so fast and he's so much stronger than people realize. And he just plays with the ferocity. You can tell why this kid was such a former highly, highly recruited prospect. And he's coming to Arizona State. And even with the perceived depth at the position, at the position, you feel like he's going to end up being one of the guys who, is going to be one of the one of the bigger impacts. And somebody that you are going to be talking about at year's end is him. But there's depth, too. There's Prince Dorbaugh, who also transferred. Garen Stansbury, Stansbury returns for another season. They've got Ashley Williams is coming in as a freshman. There's so many guys on the edge. In the interior, I'm a huge CJ Fight fan. I have been driving that boat for quite a while. I will continue to do so Deshaun Sean Mallory's transferring in from Michigan state and uh, Anthony Cooper moved inside to defensive tackle to get him time because there's just so much depth, but ASU, I believe had 16 sacks last year, something like that, but it was dead last in the conference and they're going to want to at least try and double that production this year. And there's certainly enough guys there to warrant that kind of feeling that you're going to end up having a, um, a handful of guys that can get, you know, three sacks, four sacks, five sacks, and just add those up cumulatively and have the production that you're looking for. So the pass rush is what I'm going to be looking for. The secondary should be a lot of fun. The linebackers are a really interesting group. But I want to see how the pass rush ends up looking, how it goes from a bottom tier unit in the entire nation to, to seeing if it can become a more viable unit and help out the defense in the first year under Brian Ward, who by the way, I'm very, very big on.
0: Last week, Colorado shocks the world announces they're coming back to the big 12. (laughs) Everyone freaks out the big 12, all the big 12 fans ready to throw Brett Yormack a parade saying that we have killed the Pac-12. 12. It is all over. And, then nothing has really happened since. And it, you kind of look at the whole situation, you're like, well, they did kind of take Colorado, who was the maybe the least important member of the 10 remaining schools and nothing else has moved. There are a, probably offers out to like at least like four or five of the Pac-12 schools. You're obviously a person that, you know, ASU alumni, this affects you. I know a few years ago when Oklahoma and Texas left, how kind of like when that happens and the future of the conference is like in jeopardy and you're like, oh my God, is my team all of a sudden not going to matter? Am I going to be in the Mountain West or the MAC or whatever weird uh, G5 conference? Well, How are you feeling about the Colorado thing? Do you think everyone is overreacting or are we potentially here and maybe the next week or two going to see more dominoes fall?
1: Uh, It's... It's just such an intriguing situation to watch. I am a Pac-12 doomsday guy, and I don't think that it's going to be a conference in 10 years because it just feels like so many teams are going to be plucked. There's a rumor going around that Washington and Oregon are going to be receiving an offer to go to the Big Ten. We've been talking about the four corner schools being Utah, Colorado, Arizona State, and Arizona hopping over to the Big 12 as well you would have Cal, you would have Stanford, Oregon State, Washington State at that point. And that's a very difficult conference to want to market off of. Like, Even though Oregon State is a very underrated football team, the rest of the programs there just leave so much to be desired. And the Pac-12 at that point is starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel for what they can provide to the conference. SMU and San Diego State have been heavily rumored to be going to the conference, but now the San Diego state thing is super weird where they're returning to the mountain West, at least for this year, there's, there's options throughout the West coast to be able to put together, but nothing really stands out to you as far as like, how can you maintain the success and the continuity of the PAC 12 when you lose the LA schools, when you lose a Colorado who. Yeah, they're the most unsuccessful, but there was at least reason to have excitement for them. It's now starting to go out the window. And if you lose Arizona State, Arizona and Utah, and potentially Washington and Oregon, I just don't know what you're supposed to do from there. As far as the movement goes, I just don't know how quick it's going to be. We could find out while we're recording this that somebody is leaving the Pac-12, or we could find out at the end of the season. We could also find out people that are joining the Pac-12 in any time in between. It it feels like the ball has probably started to get moving, though. And if I had to make an educated guess, I would say probably within the next month, we find out the future of Arizona because they're one of the teams that is heavily, heavily, heavily rumored to be joining the Big 12 as well. The
0: thing with Oregon and Washington, I think if they were going to the Big Ten, I think it would have happened already. And I think th- the Big Ten's mindset is like, well, we can, we know we can get them. And why get them now when we're not sure what that like value? Because I, I, I've been preaching this, like when this stuff all broke, the Big Ten or the SEC too, to do the same degree, they aren't going to be adding teams unless they add more annual revenue to that TV contract. And that is just such a high, 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 high bar that probably the only school other than like the ACC schools who are locked into the grant of rights, which I'm not sure which one of them, like, you know, whether North Carolina or Florida state has that value would be Notre Dame. That would be like kind of the big fish that could be taken, but they're pretty solid and stuck in being an independent. Um, the thing that's interesting to me is again, like if, if these mountain schools leave, then, you know, if more come, then what happens to Oregon Washington? Do they say, well, we can still kind of like salvage something in the PAC 12. And then, you know, cause the thing is too, if you have like, if you add San Diego state, SMU, UNLV or whatever, get back to 12 teams, 12, 14 teams, you can still get into the playoff. And what's really the difference if like, even if the PAC 12 media contracts, that's why Colorado left was the media contract and the meteorites right. deal. And what's really the difference of like, we can be in this conference, we still have our chance to make the playoff. And, you know, if it's just like a few million dollars a year that like the big 12 is making more of us, like, why, why would we go ahead and do that? And um, that's kind of like all my thoughts on it.
1: The media rights is just such a, Delicate and controversial topic for the Pac-12, man. And it sucks that it's gotten to this point. I heard a comparison today for George Klyavkov of the the commissioner for the Pac-12. Because of everything that Larry Scott was doing, I heard this today from Brad Brad Denny. And Denny said that he uh, essentially was handed a live grenade because Larry Scott did everything that he could possibly do to destroy the PAC 12 and Klyovkov comes in. I think he's done an admirable job. I think he's done the best that he could, but unfortunately that still was not enough. And now you face these media rights issues that are going on and the PAC 12 still doesn't have anything concrete yet. And it feels like every day we hear, Oh, it's getting close. It's getting close, but close never comes. And it's like, we, we can only say that so many times before teams are giving up and like USC and UCLA and Colorado are on their way out the door. Who's to stop Arizona next or Utah or Arizona State or Oregon or Washington? Like it has become a ticking time bomb that Klyovkov is desperately trying to defuse right now with a media rights deal. But it feels like every time that we start to get the news that it's going to be closer, we get more and more doubt as to what's going to happen. So in one sense, like I feel bad for him because I think that he truly is doing his best. I don't think Klyovkov is a problem here, but at the same time, there just needs to be more urgency than what it feels like there is. And maybe, maybe I'm totally off base with that. I'm not in the room with Kliovkov, but it seems like this is a process that just, it needs to be figured out. Tonight, and I just don't believe that they're in a situation where that's going to be the case, and that is very disappointing for the future of the Pac-12. The good
0: thing would be, kind of like what I said earlier, there might not—I mean, Big 12 will probably still have more, you know, annual money, but not too much that might like lure a team away. And also, to ESPN—they need to fill that nighttime like slot and the best place to do that is games to start seven, eight o'clock Pacific coast time. So it looks like that's probably the likely outcome. An interesting analogy uh, that I heard was, this is very similar to like the turn of the century when basically the ACC like killed the big East. And it was kind of like, you know, they're, they're on the Island, there's no food and it's either eat or be eaten. And it looks like the PAC 12 has basically just been getting eaten here.
1: I love that comparison to the Big East because it it is so funny to look back at all the teams that were in the Big East and it's like, that was like a really underrated conference when you had like uh, Maryland Miami. and Rutgers, Miami. Yeah, like there there were some really, really quality programs that West were Virginia. in the Big East. Yeah, and they just got poached piece by piece by piece. And outside of like college basketball, the big East is just not a thing. And the PAC 12 may or may not be trending that way. And you certainly hope that that's not the case because your power five conferences includes the PAC 12. And I think that college football is better when the PAC 12 is good, because like you mentioned, it, 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 it extends your, your Saturdays and allows you to go into the evening and still have a good game on. Like we have the hashtag PAC 12 after dark because anything can happen. And it's not just about the Oregon's Washington's, the USC's the Utah's of the world. You have your Arizona States, you have your uh, Oregon States and your Washington States and your, and your, and your UCLA's that can pull off upsets and be good teams. I'm not giving Arizona the credit just in case you didn't pick up on that. I'm not, mm -mm. but point is like, I think college football is better when the Pac-12 is good. But if you're gearing up for the end of days in the conference, then there's just not much you can really do except, you know, hope that your four corner schools and the schools in the North and the remainder of the schools in California are able to find good situations. And you still will have those late kickoff games. That, that won't change because nobody's going to come to Tempe, Arizona at noon in August when it's 120 degrees outside. That's just not sustainable. We need those late night kickoff games that also are a beneficiary for college football as a whole to be able to extend that day. And it's not just having like, let's say like Arizona State ends up becoming one of the the better teams in the Pac-12 and they win eight to 10 games every year. You don't want them necessarily playing at noon every day you want them to play in the night because it it creates that intrigue of continuing to watch college football instead of it coming on late at night. And you're like, Oh, well, you know, I already watched Alabama. I already watched Ohio state. I don't need to watch Arizona state. I don't need to watch Stanford, whatever it is. Like you still need those teams on the West coast that are able to create a very, very close to 24 hour schedule for you having college football games on. So That aspect of it, I agree with you, is very, very important to maintain. And I also agree with you that it feels like the Pac 12 is looking at what the Big East had to look at just a handful of years ago. It really was not that long ago that the Big East was disassembled. I think it was just about 10 years, maybe, which in all actuality is really not that long. Transitioning back
0: to this upcoming season. We know that the Pac-12 is basically two divisions, not really divisions because that's not like how they're structured anymore, but there's the good half and then there's the bad half. And at the very top of the good half, we have basically, we'll call them the the big four. We have Washington, USC, Oregon, Utah. We have USC who's returning with the Heisman Trophy winner, Lincoln Riley coming back second season. A lot of hype. A lot of people are picking them to win the conference, win the playoff. We have Utah, who is just quietly, they're kind of like the San Antonio Spurs, won the last two Pac-12 titles. No one wants to pick them because they're not the sexy pick. And then right. we also have Oregon and Washington, who are returning their quarterbacks, too. They have coaches entering their second year. They're wanting to improve off of a very good first year. I don't necessarily know how to like rank all of these teams. I don't know... What is going to distinguish all of them? They all play each other this year too, which is a little different than last year. About a month away from the season, where are you ranking these teams? And, you know, is there one that you're maybe high on, one that you're maybe not so high on?
1: I will tell you one of the best kept secrets in the country isn't even in those four that you just mentioned. It's Oregon State. And it's so weird to say that Oregon State football is going to be good this year. But they very, very quietly won 10 games last year. And they have put together such a stable team with a great defense, with one of the... uh, Jonathan Smith's been a great
0: coach for them. He's been a great coach. He
1: he has, and he's really got them moving into into a very good situation. Now, the quarterback is going to be the biggest key here. And they're going to be looking for DJ Uyunglele to be able to redirect his career and turn into that former five-star and top quarterback recruit that he was supposed to be at Clemson, but just never built that momentum off of. I'll tell you right now, if he can be even a good quarterback average, they're still going to be an eight-win team. If he's a good quarterback for them this year, they're going to be one of the teams that is going to surprise a lot of people in the Pac-12. As far as the four teams you mentioned, I think that Washington is actually the team that I have at the top of my list. There's not too many weaknesses with them. And Michael Penix is going to throw the you-know-what out of the football as long as he stays healthy, which he was relatively healthy for basically the whole year last year. He's got Romeo Adunze. Rome Adunze, I mean. Uh, He's got Jalen McMillan. They've got a lot of weapons for him to throw the ball to. And then defensively, they just need their secondary to get a little better because they, they're really good up front. They got Braylon Trice, who was one of the uh, leading sack artists in the Pac-12 last year. They, they've they got pieces scattered throughout this team, offensively, defensively. They're a very sound football team. Kalen DeBoer is a very good coach. He did that same stuff when he was at Fresno State. and He carried that momentum to the Huskies. They're probably my pick to win the Pac-12 right now. We still got to talk about USC. You don't just not talk about Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams, who are arguably the best offensive coach in college football, and then arguably the best player in college football. They're still going to be up there. It's just about whether or not they can finally, you know, not be choking at the finish line. Can't ever sleep on Utah. I know Cameron Rising is coming back from an ACL injury, but they are just a very well coached team. For my money's worth, Kyle Whittingham is a top five coach in college football. He is just that good. He's that consistent. He's that steady. He's that reliable. And then with Oregon, similar to USC, like they're going to be a great team, but it feels like they're going to choke every once in a while. And if, if Bo Nix takes a step back without Kenny Dillingham, I think that's your biggest worry right now is, is will, will Bo Nix continue to be the Heisman front runner that he was with Dillingham? Or was this a one-year wonder kind of thing? Because he never was this kind of quarterback at Auburn. So there's question marks with all of these teams, honestly. But I feel like the least amount of questions for any of those teams is Washington, which is why they're my pick to win the Pac-12 this year.
0: The only thing with them, I, I don't know. Michael Penix Jr. has been tore both of his ACLs at one point in his career. Yep that that's the thing that's really scary to stay me. Healthy. And maybe I'm just a little hurt because a few years ago. Uh, when he was still at Indiana, I was, like, really high on them after they had that like, good 2020 season, and then he tore his ACL again, and then it was just all downhill for Indiana, and it's still been all downhill for Indiana since. I was kind of wondering, too, about, like, Oregon without Dillingham because the coach there is more of a defensive coach, and it is going to be interesting to see if if there is going to be a drop-off from Bo Nix. I also – a game I have circled – And that I, I really am looking forward to bet this year is they're going to Texas tech early in the season, Oregon. That should be high scoring. And they're playing, um, Texas tech is, um, a very, like, they're kind of like a sleeper in the big 12. Almost they have, they are, they have a second year coach and Joey McGuire, who is like this kind of high school, Texas high school, like kind of recruiting legend. he, has really built that team. This isn't Cliff Kingsbury's Texas Tech team. They have a good defense. They have one of the better defenses in the conference. They have a quarterback who was a former Oregon player, Tyler Shuck, and he has been in the Texas Tech program for a few years now. And I actually think that that is a game that Texas Tech could win. USC, it just feels like just like in Riley, like he just he wins 10-11 games a year. That's just what he does. They do have to play Notre Dame out of conference. Again, they have to play the good teams in the Pac-12. UCLA seems like they're going to kind of drop off this year, maybe a little bit. Maybe this could be Chip Kelly's last year if it doesn't go that well.
1: Um, they have a cupcake schedule, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then you also have Utah, who is just, they're they're the bully of the conference. They are always just solid everywhere. Cam Rising, when he plays and he's right. Again, he's also another person, like, he needs to stay healthy, too. If he's not healthy, Utah these last like 2 3 years when he's not healthy or one or before he became the starter has just not looked like a good football team. So it he's is going to so be so much
1: more important than people realize.
0: Yeah. It is just going to be very interesting to see how all of this stuff shakes up. Um let's see what else do I got here for you. Um do you have any thoughts on the Ravens coming up this year? The <laughs> Lamar contract drama is over.
1: I... Yeah, I'm just so happy they were able to get that done. It was something that just made me upset. Not not that like I ever fully believed that Lamar was leaving, but it it started to get to a point where I was preparing myself for the worst if it did get to that point. And I'm really glad that that didn't end up happening because if you if you put Lamar Jackson on these teams that are, are like staying healthy. They win a lot of football games, but the moment you take them off, look at what happens to Baltimore. There's the wheels fly right off of that team. So there was so much leverage for Lamar Jackson and his camp to know that like, if you lose me, you're not going to be a good football team. So it was so important to be able to retain him. And they did that. And then they started putting stuff around him, right? Did you overpay for Odell Beckham? Absolutely you did, but you needed to. You needed to have a true number one receiver for Lamar Jackson. Now, is Odell that? We don't know because he's coming off an ACL injury and he just missed a year of football. So he might not be a true number one, but at least on paper you have that. Rashad Bateman should be back to 100% and Steve Saunders, the former uh, strength and conditioning coach for the team is gone which means that he's not going to ask his guys to deadlift 300 pounds when they're coming off of injury. Like he's not going to be in a situation where these guys are re injuring themselves. You hear about the horror stories from guys like Derek Wolf, who was injured for so much of his time in Baltimore. And he talks about just how bad Saunders was for all of that. And it's not a coincidence that you've had injuries the last few years. So if they are moved on from Saunders, I believe that this team's going to be healthier and if this is a healthy team, they're a dangerous team. We we very much overlook them. It's We talk about the Bengals. We talk about the Chiefs. We talk about the Bills. Right now, there's a lot of hype about the Jets because of Aaron Rodgers. There's a lot of hype surrounding the Chargers, especially after they re-signed Justin Herbert. There's lots of hype around um sean payton's taking
0: shots at everybody even though i was yeah he is i was looking at Dude. the bottom line of espn today and like they wanted to tim patrick that wide receiver is out for the uh, season tours
1: achilles and... man that's just so
0: sad yeah and then they they released kj hamler i saw that today it Jeez. was like he had like some sort of like heart issue or something
1: i didn't see that
0: oh that's scary
1: i hope he's okay
0: yeah i do too i thought that that like he was an awesome player, really kind of a nice little slot guy, speedy guy. And then the Jaguars too, in that conference too, because there's just, just the, that division is just so weird and bad. right? <laughs> Cause they're just like, we're just going to start a bunch of young guys that might not be good. And then you have the, the AFC North where you have the Ravens that you just talked about the bagels. When Joe Burrow had that calf injury a few days ago, like last week, everyone freaked out. Cause it looked like a Kevin Durant Achilles. Yeah, and then you also they have, dodged
1: a bullet, man.
0: They also have the Browns with Deshaun Watson. I don't. Is he just going to be bad forever now, or is he going to come back and be awesome? I'm, I'm
1: hoping so. Not even because he's a Brown. It's just because I do not think he is a good person at all. He could be a Raven. I would. I would root against him. I just cannot get on board with Deshaun Watson.
0: Then you also have the Steelers with Kenny Pickett, who. I don't know Everyone what is ceiling. Up. I don't know what his ceiling is, but I don't think it's that high. I don't think it's like top five quarterback high. So if you you're right. I think maybe Ravens could be like just the sneaky dark horse if they just kind of you know slowly, surely win. Defense is always
1: solid. I don't know, man. Yeah, and you got Roquan that just got extended. Mm-hmm. Marlon Humphreys there. Marcus Williams is hundred percent healthy. Their defense is just gonna be how how much can you get out of the pass rush? Because Odafe Owe hasn't taken that next step yet. David Ajabo, super excited about him. We're going to see what he can do now that he is a year and a half removed from an Achilles injury. They've got Tyus Bowser that's there. There's potential for them to sign a Melvin Ingram. I personally hope they bring back Justin Houston. There's the rumors that they're interested in Chase Young, but the pass rush is just going to be so important for them because. In the secondary, you've got two great safeties, Marcus Williams and Kyle Hamilton. You've got one of the best corners in football, Marlon Humphrey. But across from him, it's it's a question mark. Rock Yassine is there. I hope that he can be good. Every, everyone else is just a lot of young guys that are inexperienced. And that's where you're going to throw the football. You're not going to throw it at 44. You're going to throw it at whoever's lining up across from Marlon Humphrey. So it's, it's going to be so important for your pass rush to be able to step up. And Calais Campbell's gone. So the defensive line is looking to see if Michael Pierce can get back to form, see what Travis Jones can do in year two, see what Broderick Washington and Justin Matabwike can do in their contract years. The pass rush is going to be what defines this team because as far as the coverage unit goes, you've got two really good linebackers with Smith and Patrick Queen, and you got a secondary that should be able to hold up. But if you're only a 30 sack team, this is going to be a long year. You need to be 40 and up and that's just part of having an elite defense it's right there you just need to uh, you need Oa to take that step and you're hoping that a can end up being what he was advertised to be before he tore that achilles are
0: you an nba guy at all i don't know if i've ever talked basketball with you do you have a team
1: uh i am a very casual nba fan mm-hmm. the, the ravens are really the only out-of-market team for me otherwise i pretty much stay in the valley with Arizona State and the Suns, the Diamondbacks, and the Coyotes. So I follow. I follow the Suns very casually. I'm not a super in depth fan. I uh, I did think it was time to uh, move on from the previous head coach, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Because I don't. Yes, Monty Williams. He just wasn't a great a great coach to make in time adjustments, in game adjustments. Rather, um, there was questionable usage of timeouts and everything. And even when they made the hire, it just didn't feel like it was one of those, like, this is the one, this is the one that takes us to the next step. It felt like he was very much a placeholder coach. So I'm looking forward to what they can do moving forward. Now that they have, now that they have Kevin Durant for a whole year, as long as he's healthy, knock on wood, the potential of him and Devin Booker is always exciting. You bring in, Oh, my gosh. From Washington. The um, from Washington. Oh, Bradley Beal from. Yes, thank you, Bradley Beal. This is exactly why I'm just a casual fan. Is that totally escaping? <laughs> yeah, you bring him back. <laughs> you bring in Bradley Beal, and that should round out your, you know, quote unquote, big three with him, Katie and uh, Devin Booker. DeAndre Aiden is still there. That's about the nicest thing I can say about him. The funniest thing I've ever heard in my life is DeAndre Ayton is the only person in the world who lays up his Oreos instead of dunking them in the milk because he's so soft for a seven-footer, and he just lays up his shots, and it's like, I want you to posterize these guys. If he wants to be the best center in the, in the NBA, he's got that potential. You're just waiting for him to decide and wake up and realize how much more physically intimidating and daunting he is to some of the other guys. So I really like the Suns. I think they're a fun team to watch. But the problem is you've got the uh, you got the Nuggets, which are just so good with Jokic. He's the best player in basketball. And then Jamal Murray and Aaron Gordon are really good, too. Uh, The Warriors are still a really good team. Who knows what the Clippers are going to do? Who knows how the Lakers are going to look this year? The The West is a very, very good conference. So the Suns are just going to need to be perfect and stay healthy if they're going to get a chance to be able to get back to the uh, NBA Finals. They just They're going to need a lot of things to go right. For what it's worth, the Suns are the only team that won more than one game against the Nuggets during their playoff run. So as far as I'm concerned, That series was the right NBA Finals. That's what I will, uh, that's a hill I'll die on, is we were the best team they played.
0: That is true. And it's like, you have the Booker-Durant combo where if they can just go crazy, and then you just get a little bit of something from someone else, and they can stay healthy, and they can get a good home, you know, good seed in the conference and get home, home court for a few rounds. Like they have the talent, at least at the top end, to like make some noise. But again, one of those guys goes down, which you could say that just about any team. Like you know, things can be very dangerous. When you talked about eight in there, it's a weird situation with the Suns because it feels like they're in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation with him because he's he's really your only like like trade ship that you have, and you can't you don't have the assets to like really upgrade him. And I don't know what that player would be even if you could. So it would be like, all right, you trade him for like four pieces or something. The only problem with that is with the way that the NBA is kind of turned. Like you need him for that Jokic matchup. Like you just need him for that because he's the only person like Kevin Durant's not going to be able to guard him. I mean, no one can really guard him. No one can guard Jokic, but Aiton's probably one of the best options in the entire NBA. If he's right and has his head on straight, And to me, that's probably, if he's locked in and he can be the best version of himself, the Suns very well could win the NBA title next year.
1: I certainly hope so, man. It's just, I think that so much is going to depend on DeAndre Ayton because he is just this, he's so big, he's so athletic, he's so talented, he can shoot the ball, like he brings so much of an intrigue and like this high upside element to the team. It's just, when are you going to decide that you're the most talented athletic dominant player on the court? Because if you're looking at pure athleticism as, and take into account the age and everything, he might be the most talented player on the Suns. It's just a matter of like, well, when on, are man. you going
0: oh, to, I know you're I,
1: casual. Dude. <laughs> Most talented don't, on the Suns. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I mean for the Suns, you have Devin not Booker, a, a Kevin Durant. Team. Oh, dude! No, no, no. For sure. I, to me, if if uh, if Aiden were to play more physical, the way that his position demands it, I think that there's just so many elements that he has for you. He could be a great rebounder. He's a walking double double if he's just able to get to that point, but. I mean, obviously, Kevin Durant, even in his age, is still probably, at, at, at a minimum, a top-ten player in the league. And Devin Booker is just magical to watch. He is so much fun. He is the closest thing that the Suns have to their own Steph Curry, as far as a shooter goes from anywhere on the court. I just think that if if everything fell right... For DeAndre Ayton, he might be the most talented player on this team. But if only counts in uh, ifs and almost only count in horseshoes and hand grenades. So doesn't doesn't matter the hypotheticals here. The fact of the matter is he is, at best, the fourth best player on our team right now.
0: Still like two and a half months away from NBA action. Covered a lot of stuff tonight. Quarterbacks, Pac-12 football, Ravens, little NFL. Richie I think we're out of time. Why don't you tell us where we can find all of your work and then we'll head out of here
1: Yeah so you can you guys can find me on uh, X which is uh, Twitter as far as I'm concerned my uh, my handle is at Richie Brad's 36 and that's Brad's with a Z and then you can follow along the locked on Sun Devils podcast as well. It's a daily podcast Monday through Friday we try and interact as much as we can you can follow them. At LO underscore Sun Devils. But if you guys are looking for Sun Devils content, I'm definitely your guy. Follow me on Twitter. I am very good about uh, interacting with you guys. DMs are open. If you want to have a conversation or anything like that, please, uh, please come on in and we can talk some ASU. There's almost no one that I will be unwilling to talk about Arizona State with. So, yeah, I'm your dude.
0: Yeah, with the DMs too. They uh, since they've done like the verified thing, I can't DM people that are verified. I can't do oh, it,
1: dude. I yeah, and I'm
0: not. I'm not paying for it either. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't want to. Who knows? Maybe I'll. I've been able to find. I've been able to be booked up enough the last few weeks. So, but yeah, again, man, thanks a
1: lot. It's my pleasure. I always love coming on.
0: That's gonna do it for the show today. Thanks again to Richie Dradshaw for joining us. Thank you again for listening. To the sports detective podcast if you want to follow the show on twitter and instagram or x is what twitter i guess is called now my handle there is jd major 2 my instagram handle is jws detective that will give you updates on the show also maybe some opinions we might start throwing out some clips on there we'll see want to grow the show a little bit more want to better demonstrate what i actually do on this podcast through social media that's something i've always struggled at trying to do but we're going to work on trying to do that as the future goes on as we enter this upcoming football season and uh make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to i will be back tomorrow with more college football content and as always guys i will see you next time